Open your Bibles, please, to Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Well, do you remember my Christmas list plan? I took my wife a coupon advertisement and I pointed to it and I said, that would be an excellent gift. Well, that worked out perfectly. I just wanted to let you know. Uh, I got, I'm a proud owner of a, of a GPS unit for the car and uh, got a real nice one with a big screen and, and it'll, you know, it'll talk and do all kinds of things. Um, although I understand you can still get lost using the GPS <laughs> because now the debate will be whether or not I have to turn it on or not. Whether Do I really need the directions or not? Well, we had a great holiday season with that and a lot of other things. We just love doing things together so much that we both got root canals in the last couple of weeks as well. <laughs> We're all about togetherness. But the rest of the world hasn't been doing so blissfully. These are the four police officers who were killed a few weeks ago. I was greatly saddened to hear of two more police officers shot a week ago. Eight police officers shot in eight weeks in the Puget Sound region. One of them probably not going to survive. One of them is surviving from this last most recent shooting. Um, that scares me because I ride around in patrol cars with police officers and I've never been scared in that before. I've been driving 100 miles, you know, riding 100 miles an hour down the road and I'm not scared, but I'm scared. This changes the world for me. Uh, the, hell, the recession that we're in drags on with a tough job market and decreasing values on real estate. The health care reform process is full of unknowns that are quite unsettling to many folk. Not to mention the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that are nearing a decade in length. We suppose that they will be over soon. We don't know. And on top of that, the normal day-to-day challenges... I talked to a friend this week who was very discouraged in his life because he's been sued in a, in a certain uh, business situation and uh, has other challenges like that. Helen Steele is being sued. And she said, we have to work through a lot of instability. Life is not all hunky-dory. Here's my good friend Jim Zorn. Jim Zorn is the coach of the Washington Redskins, and uh, I had a chance to meet him a number of years ago with some kids from our youth group and uh, visit with him. He, he believes in the Lord very strongly, follows the Lord, but apparently his football coaching skills aren't so great right now. Because this last week, we were down at the, uh, the discount mall down in Burlington, and, uh, and there was a sign that said, Sign the petition for Jim Zorn. And I thought, what the world is that? And I, I don't really follow football or any professional sports that much, but I go over and there's this little hand-scribbled thing. Please sign this petition to encourage Jim Zorn because, you know, the team's not doing too good. I thought, really? <laughs> Life is uncertain. Life is un- not as stable as we would like it to be at times. But I have a message for you today in the midst of that instability and at the beginning of a new year and a message for Jim Zorn, and I won't send it to him because he probably doesn't remember me. 
But there's a great message for us in these times from Second Peter chapter 3. Follows, I read. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Verse 2, that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of the Lord, the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded by water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering, he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which dwell righteousness. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But... Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. What in the world is going on around us? This passage of Scripture gives us a couple of descriptions. We ought to think about the time of this truth. And it starts by telling us, um, he's writing to us and saying, look, there are some things that are going to happen in the last days. Verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. One of the challenges that is constantly before the body of Christ is the, is the consistent stream of people who will try to tell you why the Lord's going to come back this year or this week or this month or very, very soon because this and this and this are lining up. The truth is in the scripture, once Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again to heaven, the day of Pentecost occurred. From that moment on, we were in the last days. And when the apostle Peter wrote this 
you know, in the middle of that first century or toward the end of that first century, the last days were already going on. With God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. We are in the last days. God will come and take us off this planet to himself at some point, at some unknown time frame. We don't know when that's happening. We are in this last day period. It has been an unsettled and an unsure time period since it began, and it will continue that way until it ends. When you get up in the morning and read the paper, and you see things that are unsettling, you need to know that God said, look, this is going to be an unsettled kind of time. And in particular, he told us what's going to characterize this time period. Look at verse 3. The scoffers will come, the people who make fun of Christianity, walking according to their own lusts. Now that is not a new thing. Is the world more wicked today than it was in the first century? No. I think it's equally wicked. I think in some parts of the world, wickedness waxes and wanes. That is, it gets worse and better a little bit here and there. Um, But generally speaking, it's been a wicked time period. People live, the word lust means your own desire, the desires of your flesh. And they live according to those desires. We are in a more unsettled time period than we were a few years ago because of people living by our lust. This last week, um, the head of the BPA, the Bonneville Power Administration, came out and went to Intelco along with the governor, great photo op, and signed an agreement that says Intelco is going to get cheap power for the next 17 months I thought, did anybody read that part of the agreement? 17 months. So they are guaranteed cheap power for 17 months. And if you don't follow all of this, what it means is they will be able to continue producing aluminum, which means 528 people or whatever it is that works there are going to continue to have jobs guaranteed for the next 17 months. And it was big news because they've been unsettled about what the future is according to the power cost. Do you know why that all got messed up back in 2001? Do you remember some guys running a company called Enron? Do you know what the guys at Enron were doing? They were manipulating the cost of power by some sophisticated means in the stock or the, the, you know, the commodities market or whatever it is. They're putting out these contracts and different things. And uh, the result was huge power increases and big, big dollars in their pocket. That's the bottom line. All they cared about was how can we manipulate this to get money. And of course the result was this huge crash in the energy market and that's when the first downturn in Talco had and a bunch of people lost their jobs back in 01 or whenever it was. Men living according to their lusts. And the result is it creates instability. Not to mention the current unsettled time period we're in. Uh, unless you haven't been paying attention, you understand that the folks who control, uh, not control, but essentially control it through how they make deals in the stock market, in the investment banking market, have created this huge uh, house of cards by poor quality investments, and it all fell down. A guy named Bernie Madoff had a big investment scheme 
that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. That's when I'm going to get investment money from you and I'm going to pay you so you leave your money with me. And he kept doing that all the way up to $50 billion evaporated. Oh, they're going to get a few million back out of the stuff he owned. Why did Bernie Madoff do that? Because it made his pockets fat, living by his lusts. These police officers that I showed you their picture were killed, and another one killed in the city of Seattle were not even in a conflict. And I certainly don't think it's okay for a suspect to kill a police officer anytime. But these fellows were just having coffee, doing their paperwork, or sitting in a car talking to an officer, and a guy walks up and shoots them. Why does he do that? Well, because he has certain desires in his heart, and he thinks, this is going to be great. And we go, what in the world's wrong with the guy? Well, he's deep in sin. We understand that. Tiger Woods is a prime example of somebody living according to his desire. Again, if you don't read the paper, you don't listen to the news, Tiger Woods, most, by some people's accounts, if he hadn't done what he did, he would have been declared the greatest athlete in the last decade. But he's got mistresses, apparently, in every town that he goes to. Had long-term relationships with a number of women, even though he has a beautiful wife and a couple kids at home, all the money anybody could hope for, all the fame and uh, prestige and so on, but he lives according to his desires. Even, the, even in the, the, the world of Muslims, they live according to their desires. What do they desire? They desire to totally dominate the world. And so a couple days ago, some fella gets a little training, gets a few chemicals, straps it on his body, and tries to bring down an airplane. And uh, thankfully, he did not succeed. And he was overcome by the other passengers in the melee and stopped. And now because of that, you're going to spend an extra hour in the security line. And you'll be thankful for it. But it's because he's been living by his desires. Not by the only other thing that you can and should live by, which is the word of God. You are either living by the word of God or you are living by your desire. And those of us who try to live by the word of God are frequently shocked by those who don't live by the Word of God. We're going, what in the world is wrong with people? And sometimes we are scared by what goes on in the community of unbelievers. And we're tempted to say, what in the world is going on? And so I want to ask this second question, what is God doing in the world around us? And this passage tells us what He's doing. Look at verse 8. Beloved, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Do you know why God wrote that in there? Because he knows you're prone to forgetting. And he knows I'm prone to forgetting. So what this means is actively think on this regularly. Do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What does that mean? It means in very broad terms that God's concept of the movement of time is not like yours. When you're sick and waiting to get into the doctor, time moves so slow. And when you're happy, it moves fast. For God, it doesn't move that way at all. Because God stands outside of time, working in the events of the world to accomplish His purposes. One day is as a thousand years, a thousand is one day. The Lord is not forgetful. 
about his promises. He's not slack. He's not slow. He's not uh, on a walk. He's not out having fun. It's not like he, he went, oh, oh, I forgot. The timer went off and I forgot to do something. No, he's not that way. The problem is we just can't see what he's doing all the time. He's not slack, but here is what he is doing. He is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is God doing in the world? God is saving sinners. In verse 4, we're warned that people would say, God said he's going to come back, but he's not coming back. But he says, no, now listen, there is a God He is saving people. He will come back to judge all people. And only those who believe in Christ will escape. But the great truth that he's given here is, look, God is on a timetable that's not the same as yours. Think about the patience of God in your life. Did you accept Christ the first time you heard the truth, the gospel of Christ? Did you go, oh, absolutely, I must believe and become a follower right now. Or did you have to hear a few times and have some reinforcement, some encouragement, some questions answered? Even think about it this way. Some people would say, well, you know, if Christ had come a hundred years ago, I'd have never been born. And that would be okay, because certainly you wouldn't be going to hell. But you also wouldn't be going to heaven. And I guarantee you, your experience in heaven will be far, far, far beyond anything you have seen here or can imagine. And so God is patient. He is patient like a good parent is with the child. When you taught your child to tie their shoes, did you do it for them once and then spank them every time they couldn't do it after that? If you did, don't raise your hand. No, um, if you are like some parents, you've had one of these little sayings, build a teepee, come inside, close it tight so we can hide over the mountain and around we go, here's my arrow and here's my bow. You probably didn't use that one, did you? I didn't either, but I googled how to tie your shoes on the internet and that was one of the ones that came up. There's something about a rabbit and a something. Yeah, I know if, yeah, if I'd asked my wife, she knows all those things, you know. I let her take care of that stuff because I'm the one that would have spanked them after the second time they didn't get it right. But God isn't like that. He is not the ogre in the sky just waiting with the paddle. You know, you make a misstep and whack. He's not like that. He's patient. He's patient. And so when you look around and things are, are, are unsettled and are struggling, do you know what God is doing? He's unsettling the unbelievers. Because why would, they, why would they come to him if they can handle their life? If you're riding on that airplane that came in from Amsterdam, and you hear that pop and you see that smoke and you see those folks subdue that fella, when you get off that plane, if you aren't religious, you certainly ought to be working on it. And if you're not, you are a fool. It is the fool who has said in his heart there is no God. 
God unsettles the world so people will come to him. And those of us who are Christians need to say, it's okay, God's at work. God's at work. God is patient. Luke 21, 24 and Romans eleven twenty five both make reference to the time period in which we live. It's called the times of the Gentiles. They say this time period has to be fulfilled. God has some quantity of time or of people. It appears to be a quantity of people. And he's going to save these people. And when that's fulfilled, then the time is over. But until then, it isn't. And so God is being patient. Now, the real question I want to get to today is this question. So what then should believers be doing? The thing that I love about this passage is it comes right down to the last verse and it says, here's what you need to do. Certainly there are some other instructions throughout the passage. Remember, you know, don't be unsettled, whatnot. But look at, look at verse 18. But grow. Word but is a huge contrast word. All this stuff is going on. And in verse 17 he says, since you know these things... Beware, lest you fall. Instead of falling, though, what should you do? You should be growing. You should be growing. Who can grow? Who can grow? Well, the person that can grow is the person who is born Again, look at chapter 1 of Second Peter. Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, and, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith. This book is addressed to people who have already believed in Christ as their Savior. Now, that's not to say that there's not value to an unbeliever reading this book. I believe there's a, obviously, the only way an unbeliever learns about God is by reading the Bible. And the only way they learn about salvation. This book is addressed to believers. That doesn't mean unbelievers can't profit from it. An unbeliever could learn that God has great things in store for those who do believe in verse 4 of chapter 1. An unbeliever could learn that it's possible to become a good person in Christ in chapters 5 through 11 of verse, of chapter, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. An unbeliever could learn that the Bible claims to be the very word of God in verse 21 of chapter 1. An unbeliever could be warned that there will be false teachers which would lead him astray. But only a believer in Christ as Savior can fully grasp all of this truth and live it out because only a born-again believer in Christ has the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit creating godliness inside. We like to watch the uh, CBS uh, morning show on Sunday morning a little bit. They always have some interesting stuff. Today they had a piece on nostalgia. Nostalgia, you know, thinking back about the good old days. They had a psychologist on there whose whole field of study is nostalgia. And look, I want to tell you what she learned. She learned that it can be valuable to think back when you're in a difficulty right now. If you think back and realize how you have worked through some difficulties in the past and survived through them, and then you will gain strength to survive through them now. Wow. She could have read Philippians chapter 4, Verse 6, 7, and 8, and figure that out too, couldn't she? Because he says, 
Don't be anxious, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. With thanksgiving for the, you know, what God has done and all of that. But you know what's missing in her formula? The power. How are you going to do that? How are you going to put the anxieties of today aside by recognizing the, the supply of yesterday? Only when you have a God who is working yesterday and today and empowering that prayer and that decision you make to trust. Only a believer can really live out this truth. Only a believer can really grow in the Lord. This familiar passage puts it very clearly to us. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, all those terrible things. These are the works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Either you are in Christ with the Holy Spirit in you, enabling you to grow, or you are in the flesh, and what will come out of your life is wickedness. You have to be born before you can grow. It's that simple. Now turn back to, or excuse me, look at chapter 3, verse 11, as I ask you this next question. What does it mean to grow? What is growth in godliness? When he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, I just want to look at a couple of definitions of growth from this passage. The first one's in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things, since the whole world someday in the future will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? Let's put it this way. What would it mean for you to be a godly, mature person in light of these cataclysmic changes that are coming? Well, it would mean for you to be in holy conduct and godliness. And verse 14 puts it this way, to be without spot. He says, in light of all these things that are coming, we should have holy conduct and godliness. We should be spotless. Are you sinlessly perfect? If you are, don't raise your hand. No, we all know that we're not sinlessly perfect, and that's because this is the standard. Be holy, for I am holy. Our holiness is supposed to match up to God's holiness. And if, if you've studied God at all from his word, you know that he is absolutely without sin. And so that's our standard. I got my grades from the first two seminary classes that I took this fall, and I'm happy to report to you that I got an A and a C. <laughs> and I would have gotten an A over here, I think, except everything was late that I turned in. That's really bad, kids. Don't be that way. Don't do like I do. Do like I say. And I could tell you all the reasons why that happened, but the, the chief reason is I didn't understand what I was getting into, and so I just got behind, and there it is. But that'll be the last time that happens. But you know why I got a C? It's because the teacher does not grade on the curve. They have a grading standard. And in the syllabus, which is 
when they tell you everything that's going to be in the class, here's the content, here are your assignments, and here's how the grading will go. It's all spelled right out there. So many points for this, so many points for that, so many points for the other, and, and this is the A cut off, and this is the B cut off, and this is the C cut off, and that's that. And in this particular class, the teacher had a standard, which is everything that comes in late gets a 20% reduction. Okay? And that's the standard. The grace part is, he let me turn it in. And he said, well, I know when pastors, uh, you know, take classes, it's hard, you know, and so on. And, and I'm going, yes, it's very hard, you know. <laughs> but there is an objective standard. And if you don't meet it, you don't meet it. And that's the way God's holiness is. God doesn't grade on a curve. You see, we like to look around and say, well, I'm more righteous than that fella. Oh, I'm way better than that guy. Look at that guy that shot those cops. I'm way better than that. That's wicked. That guy's sick. He's insane. And we are way better than that fella, but that is not the standard. The standard is be holy for I am holy. And so when we stop at the beginning of the year and take stock of our life, we ought to say, where is God and where am I on that scale? And how can I move closer Toward that standard. That's what it means to be growing, to be maturing. There's a second phrase here that describes growth. Look in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved. I've just termed this the joyful anticipation of Christ's coming. You Properly, if you're a theologian, I, I would even more properly say, joyful anticipation of the end of the world. Not that I'm happy that it's all going to be dissolved, but there is a whole series of events that's going to cover more than a thousand years at the end of this times of the Gentiles. And, And I am joyfully looking forward to it because I get to go be with God while all of the terrible stuff happens here. A joyful anticipation of Christ coming, or about being with the Lord. And I would ask you this question. Are you excited about the Lord's coming? Or put it this way, are you excited about being with God in heaven? Uh, my parents tell me that my, my sister one time said, well, I want to go to heaven, but not just yet. I want to have a family and do some other things. A lot of folks think that way. I understand that. There might be some things you hope to get done. I'm always happy to see my kids who aren't here. I'm happy to see the kids who live here too. But I'm always, you know, if, if they call up and say, hey, we're, we're coming over. I don't say, no, you're not. I'm happy to see him. You see, there's relationship, and and I enjoy that. I enjoy that. If you aren't excited to see God face to face, I'd like to suggest that something isn't right in your relationship with God. Or, maybe even quite simply, that you don't know him well enough. I'm not suggesting that you're unsaved. I'm just suggesting that maybe there's not that much growth and maturity. Because it 
seems to me from what I read in the scripture and from what I know of human relationships, the people that you like, the people that you want to be with are the ones you like. And if you don't want to be with God, then something needs to grow up very much. There's a third area of maturity that's mentioned here. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware, don't be caught off guard, lest, what will happen if you're caught off guard? You will fall from your steadfastness and be led away with the error of the wicked. Stability in the face of the opposition. What do you do when the enemy of your soul pushes on you through the wicked world? The enemy of souls came to Job and he and he told guy, he said, this guy only follows you because you've blessed him. He said, I'm going to take away. If you let me take away everything he has, he will curse you to your face. And so Satan just pushed on Job for all he was worth. And then he pushed on Job through the foolish wisdom of his friends. And what did Job do? Job planted his back foot and went like this. And he didn't move. Now he wavered a few times. But he hung in there. Then read in 2 Timothy, and at the end of it, there's a verse that says, Endure affliction. You know what the chief thing we have to do when affliction, when hardship, when trial comes? We have to endure. Not give up. Not go back. Not run away. Here, the word I've used is steadfast. To be steadfast. God's used the word steadfast. Don't fall from your steadfastness. If you are a maturing Christian, a growing Christian, one who is moving forward in the Lord, you will be strong in the face of difficulty. That needs to be a goal in this new year, if it's not true of you. In my experience, both personally and observationally, what God seems to do is, He gives us little trials, and a little bigger, and a little bigger, and a little bigger, and a little bigger, till when you get way down here, some, some huge thing comes along, like like being sued by some unbelieving sinner because you tried to help his wife deal with the difficulty. And you think, how can I stand? Maybe some of you thought today, boy, that'd be terrible. And it would be terrible if God hadn't brought Helen through all these little things. That's why she says in passing, well, I'm being sued, and we have to deal with a lot of instability because she's weathered all those storms. And Helen's not perfect. Uh, I don't know what her imperfections are, but I'm sure she has them. But if you will stand strong in today's trial, God will prepare you for tomorrow and for that big one that you can't possibly see that's coming. The immature Christian falls apart and cries and moans and complains about their hard life when trial comes. The mature believer stands strong and unflinching. The Apostle Paul describes it this way, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness. He says, look, when... when, when when wrong doctrine pushes on you, when affliction pushes on you, don't be a child who just goes like the, way, like the kelp in the ocean, just waving around. Be strong. If you're not strong, these are some targets for you to work on in this year. These are some growth 
targets for you. And so the last question that I want to ask is how? How can I grow? Well, look back with me again at verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But grow. Go back to chapter 1, please. Chapter 1, verse 3. And God says this, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There are several words there, and there are several words in Second Peter 3 that talk about knowledge. This is it right here, folks. This is the knowledge that you need to grow. Now, what's the key word? Verse 5, chapter 1. But for this reason, for the reason that God has given you all of this knowledge where it's possible to take on the divine nature, what should you do? You should give all diligence to add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and so on. What he says is, look, God has given you all of this, now you get busy. Christian growth is the product of planned, prioritized activity in learning God's Word, praying about life, worshiping God consistently, standing firm in testing, and being faithful in service. Planned, prioritized activity. How many times did somebody say to you in the last month, are you ready for Christmas? Okay. What are they saying? They're saying, "Did you have you made a plan? Have you made preparations? Have you gotten all your work done so that when the day comes, you will be ready with the big meal and with the gifts for everybody?" Right? Did any of you say, "I'm not making any plans. I'm just going to trust God that it happens." Now, you might like to blow off all of the planning and preparation just because there's a lot of work. But I, I can guarantee you, you didn't come up to December 25th and go out in the morning and say, has Santa been here? <laughs> Did Mrs. Santa come and make a big feast for us? No, you diligently prioritized the planning of this activity. And lo and behold, there was a big meal, and there were presents, and there were whatever else you do in your, in your Christmas family time. How do I grow? By planned, prioritized activity in learning God's Word, praying about all of life, worshiping God. So, I will ask you this question that I love to ask. What is your plan for spending time in the Word and in prayer on a daily basis? If you want to grow, if you want to become godly, like 2 Peter 3 talks about, you have to have a plan in 2010 for spending time in the Word and in prayer. You ought to be systematically reading through the Word, not to say you read the Bible in 2010, 
but you ought to be systematically reading it to get little pieces of food every day. I did really good this year at Christmas. I weighed the same on the day before Christmas as I weighed on the day after. And that was in the good zone, not in the bad zone. And that was not an accident. I, I don't have to work at walking up to the table. I have to work at walking away. Okay. If you haven't got in the habit of walking up to the table every day, that's the habit you've got to get into. You've got to walk up there and get a little piece of food. I'm an advocate of small Bible reading, frankly, but feeding on it. Get that truth. Get something for your life. Get something you can chew on all day long, some little piece of truth, and work on it. What's your plan for serving the Lord inside and outside of these walls this year? There needs to be a plan. Um, You need to commit yourself to doing some ministry in God's work, Um, both here and in your your, uh, home, in your uh, office, your job, uh, your school, wherever it is. What's your plan for worshiping God? What's your plan for dealing with trials? Is your plan to just let it come and then scream and freak out? Is there a plan for how there's got to be a planned and prioritized activity? If you fail to plan, you know the old saw, you're planning to fail. But you know it won't show up right away in your Christian life. If you fail to plan to grow, it won't show up tomorrow. Do you know when it'll show up? It'll show up when the crisis comes. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the Lord is doing. Ah, My life is so hard. No, really. God's been doing things every day. You just weren't part of it. That's when it'll show up. And if if you don't want to take my advice and start growing tomorrow, when that day comes, would you tuck something away right here that says, by God's grace, the next time that day comes, I won't be in that condition. I am going to grow up. I am going to mature. Let me ask one more question. Why is growth important? Look at verse 11. <laughs> growth is important. You know, part of, one of the growth areas we looked at is the joyful anticipation of being with God. Look what verse 11 says of 2 Peter 3. Therefore, since this whole world will be dissolved, what kind of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Here's, here's the simple thing. Growth is important because your long-term destination is heaven with God. Now, um, if you know you're going to take a trip to where it's cold, you pack your warm clothes, right? If you know you're going to take a trip to where it's warm, you pack your warm clothes and your cut-off pants or whatever. If you know your destination is heaven, then you ought to grow up in the Lord because what you're going to spend eternity in God's presence. It only makes sense. Uh, when you get to heaven, will you regale God with your great sports accomplishments? Hey, God, did you hear about that football game we had? You know that one? And, and I did this and I scored the winning touchdown. Wasn't that the coolest, God? No. 
God, did you see my Christmas tree in 2009? It was the coolest Christmas tree I have ever... You know, I've made a lot of Christmas trees, but i got to tell you, this one was really over the top. Is that what you're going to talk to God about? Probably not. Or you say, God, did you see my kid? My kid got straight A's that year. And God, if you would dare to say that, and God would say, and how much of the Bible did your kid learn that year? You understand what I'm saying? That's our destination. We have to be getting ourselves ready and trying to get somebody to go along with us. Wow. Number, number two here, why, why is growth important? Because the world needs to be saved. We've read here in the scripture that God is patient because he's in the business of saving people. How does God save people? How does God save people in Ferndale? Well, part of the way he does it is through us. And if we don't have an outreach that's a little edgy and a little goofy to what you might think a church ought to be doing, we're not going to get the unbelievers to come in here and listen to God's message of truth. I need to grow because the world needs to be saved. I have got to be maturing. I have got to know God's truth. Number three, it protects us from the enemy in terms of spiritual warfare. Verse 17 says, Don't be moved off of your steadfastness, but grow. Your growth and maturity in Christ makes you strong enough to stand up to whatever the enemy brings along. This Christmas season, I have been enjoying, I guess what I would call normal activity in terms of of lifting things. I can bend over with one arm and pick up a thing like that, and that's the arm that I had worked on, I had surgery on last February. Now, the reason I can pick that up is not because I had surgery alone. It's because I had surgery, and because all year long I've been going to the gym three times a week, lifting small weights, and then larger weights, and larger weights, getting my strength back. And, and, and this last week I realized that I thought, man, I, I'm lifting stuff up just like I used to. That's really cool. But it doesn't happen without diligent, planned, prioritized activity to grow. Today's growth makes you strong for tomorrow's challenges, Christian. What's going to happen in 2010? What's going to happen this year? Last year, at this time, I had no idea that my wife would be laid off and be changing jobs. No idea at all. I did not know that I was going to be working on my master's degree. I did not know that my father-in-law would die. I did not know that our church would be given money to refurbish our worship room. I did not know it would take a year to heal from shoulder surgery. And those are just a few things that I'm comfortable sharing with you. I could tell all kinds of other things that I did not know was going to happen. We like to look into the future and say, well, it's going to be this and this and this and this and this, and this will all be just perfect. And some of those things may happen. But I basically had no, de- no clue about the details of my life. And I would venture a guess, just take a wild flyer and say, you don't know what's going to happen to you in 2010 either. But you know what I did know? 
And what I know today, it's going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year. I know it's going to be a great year because I'm going to grow in the Lord this year like I did last year. Maybe I'll grow more. I hope I won't grow less. And I want to ask you today, is it going to be a great year for you? I think Christians ought to be the most optimistic people in the world. And this is a big piece of it because I am anticipating growing. I am anticipating being more mature. I'm anticipating being better able to handle the challenges of life. We have no reason to fear the year and every reason to be excited to see what God will do in us and with us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to grow. Help us to make those planned, prioritized decisions and activities that will move us on toward more Christ-likeness. Thank you for 2009. Thank you for the blessings. Thank you for the growth. Father, help us as we continue to walk with you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.